according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 6. We are looking at the six things, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And we've seen the eyes, the tongue, the hands. Actually, we haven't quite finished the hands yet. And then we have to move on to the heart, to the feet. And then we have uh, false witnesses and strife spreaders. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to, to set aside distractions and to humble us under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that it is for us to assemble together this morning. Father, I thank you for the training time that we had and the men that were here for uh, taking part of that and the uh, matters that we discussed, the realms of doctrine and all the the uh, applications there, Father, and just rejoice over how fruitful that time was. We look forward now to this hour as you have provided for us a message from the book of Proverbs. I pray, Father, that we would be uh, clear as we uh, that we'd have clarity of sight as we look at these things and that we would have the ears to hear. And, Father, that we would be humble. It takes humility to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. So I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. As we're dealing with this, hate is not the opposite of love. It is the flip side. All right. We hate and love at the same time. God loves and God hates. He hates the abominations of his soul. He loves the uh, apple of his eye or the things that are tender to his soul. There's other phrases there. But he hates the abomination of his soul. And we've seen that he loves and hates in his non-contradictory perfection. This was sub-point A under main point four. Yahweh loves and hates in his non-contradictory perfection. And so now we are down to sub-point D, as we are listing the seven things. There are seven sins that stimulate his sanah, his hatred. The, the hatred of God, the sanah of Yahweh, is stimulated by these seven things. Six things the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And the first five are body parts. So we start with the eyes. Nothing wrong with the eyes, but eyes ramoth are a problem. All right, eyes ramoth means that they are high, they are lifted up, that they are haughty. They're the eyes that are constantly looking uh, down on everything they're looking at because the perspective is, of course, that I'm the greatest. <laughs> All right, uh, praise be to me, great things I have done in the aspects there, the high and mighty. Sometimes uh, we have a similar idiom, I think. Um, when you, when you, uh, in, in modern English, when someone has their nose in the air, right? The nose is in the air. And you see sometimes photographs of people that are just so prideful in their disdain for the little people in uh, aspects there. Anyway, we talked about the high exalted eyes that reflect the haughtiness of pride. And who are we? You know, biblically speaking, if you're adjusted to the truth of the Word of God, you know that, uh, that you deserve the lake of fire. <laughs> I know that I should be in hell right now, awaiting the lake of fire. And that's the, the reality of it. All that I have, I have by grace. All that I am, I am by grace. All that I do, I do by grace. And so there is no place for pride. There's no place for this haughtiness. Uh, and it is fundamentally the uh, first item on this list of that which 
God hates. Followed by the tongue, all right? Nothing wrong with the tongue, uh, but you've got to be careful with the tongue because the same tongue is the tongue that praises God is the same tongue that curses. And uh, that's why the book of James talks about the tongue the way, that it do- the way that it does and how if you can tame the tum- tongue, it's a uh, testimony to your maturity in the Word of God. But a tongue shecker, that's the problem. Shecker is one of two uh, diff- kind of primary words for deceit or falsehood. Uh, we have a different expression that comes up in verse 19 because there is a false witness who utters lies. And uh, so we have shecker that's repeated in verse 19, but then we, uh, that's the, the shecker witness there, who utters lies, and it's a different verb for lying in verse 19 than what we have in uh, the lying tongue of verse 17. And so we could get to that today, in which case uh, we'll spell that out for you. But the stock in trade for the evil spirits, we are not to be liars. We are to be reflective of our Savior, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Our Father is the God of truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. We, uh, we ought to be about the truth in uh, all that we say and in all that we do. So it's the stock in trade for the evil spirits, as we studied in 1 Kings 22 absolutely rejected by the Psalm 119 psalmist again and again and again. In fact, as he rejects it, he uses the language of hate. He says, I hate every false way. And so the psalmist himself adopts the mindset of God because God hates the lying tongue. All right, It's not wrong to hate if we hate what God hates. And this is what we're seeing over and over again, I think, in all seven of these applications. All right, The third item are the hands. And again, nothing wrong with hands, uh, but the hands that, uh, as it says, shofakoth damnaki, the hands that are shedding innocent blood, that's evil, and God hates that. And uh, he hates it as much as, as we keep saying and all these other things, because they are uh, violations of his nature, violations of his purpose, violations of his good pleasure. The fact that God has created a plan whereby he can redeem fallen humanity and the price of that redemption is innocent blood. Do you think that's a big deal to God the Father? All right, and so to shed innocent blood is obviously uh, an attack on the very life of God, an attack on his essence. It is a... um, it is a belittling of the voluntary sacrifice of innocent blood that is the, the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And uh, stay tuned because we've got two weeks coming up in Isaiah 52 and in Isaiah 53 and we're going to be pretty, uh, pretty intense on, the, the, on Calvary, on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and what Jesus did in his humility and what he did in obedience to the Father. All right. So the hands that shed innocent blood. And each of these descriptions, by the way, gets longer than the one before. Uh, the eyes ramoth, that's pretty simple. You've got a single adjective there, eyes ramoth, or tongue sheker. That's pretty simple. It's a single adjective. But starting with hands, now we start getting uh, more information because now we've got the, the shofakoth, we've got the participle, and, and what is it that the hands are shedding? The hands are shedding dom naki, innocent blood. Dom is the word for blood. But Domnaki is the innocent blood. Now, we didn't quite get to the end of this slide. We were looking at Deuteronomy. Um, 
we understand the shedding of blood is sometimes necessary. It is commanded. You have to protect life, and sometimes in protecting life, you actually take life. And that's uh, what happens there in Exodus 22 2. And uh, as you're protecting your home, you're protecting your property. If someone uh, breaks into your home and you are defending your home, you're defending your family, you're defending uh, the, the loss of property, uh, then uh, and it's not blood guilt. You, and when you slay that uh, robber, when you slay the burglar and what have you, in your home, there is no blood guilt with respect to that because it's not innocent blood, okay? And so uh, you have the principle there. But if he escapes, if uh, he successfully robbed you and you slept through the whole thing, that's probably my speed, I sleep through anything. But if you wake up in the morning and find that they, they done made off with whatever and you hunt them down and you track them down and you find where they are and, and whatever, well, now you're not protecting. It's not self-defense. It's not, uh, it's not uh, uh, valid at that point. It's now premeditated. It's now vigilante justice on your part. And uh, Exodus 22 says you're wrong, that that is not uh, appropriate in the uh, procedure there. Of course, Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, when they got off the ark, we have the, uh, the prescription for capital punishment. It is commanded, if for the murderer, whether it's an animal or a human that takes a human life, the, uh, the one that sheds innocent blood must be put down. All right? You've got to, you've, by man his blood shall be shed. And that's the judicial uh, defense of the sanctity of, of human life, mandated by the Word of God in Genesis chapter 9. Now, in order to safeguard the sanctity of innocent blood, we've got the expression innocent blood that's found in Deuteronomy 19.10, Deuteronomy 21, verses 8 and 9. And I think we touched on those, uh, but I know we did not quite get to Psalm 106 or to Isaiah 59. So uh, let's just back up slightly and look at Deuteronomy, and then we'll finish the slide out there. Deuteronomy 19.10, Deuteronomy 19.10. And it's interesting. Last Sunday night, we were talking about church and state and, and should the church be over the state? Should the state be over the church? Should they be separate? How do we handle them? Do we want to pattern our laws after Deuteronomy? Do we want the laws of the state of Texas to uh, be patterned after the biblical laws? And if so... Uh, how far do we take that? How closely do we match that um, in, uh, in different ways? Deuteronomy 19. Interestingly enough, what we have here is uh, the protection against innocent blood. And you'll note in verse 8, if the, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory just as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land which he promised to give your fathers, if you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. This is in a chapter where they're getting the cities of refuge, the protection uh, for the, uh, the manslayer who can flee and uh, in order to receive his fair trial, okay? So the chapter begins, and, and these cities are set aside, three to start with, and then possibly three more as their uh, territory expands. And you'll note, this is for um, man, the manslayer, as it says in verse 3, so that the manslayer may flee there. And this is in the event of an accident. This is a, a hunting accident or a workplace accident or the, you know, the axe head flies off the handle. You didn't mean to kill the guy. You don't hate him. You didn't premeditate his, his demise. 
And so this permits uh, the the uh, person to flee so that he can get a fair trial. That way the avenger, the blood avenger doesn't come and and pursue him and put him down in uh, in a in a way, and that would that would be horrible because that would then make an accident followed by a murder because because you know the avenger of blood and anger is not the procedure. Okay, that would be murder. All right. So uh, this is what happens, and they're going to set aside these cities, and uh, so the purpose is so that innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and the blood guiltiness be on you. So the hand that sheds innocent blood is, is, is hated by the Lord because of the issue of innocence, because he doesn't want to assign the wrath for the blood guilt. Okay. Now clearly though, you can't claim that it was an accident and then get out of jail free. There, there will be a trial, it will be investigated, and if in fact it was premeditated and we find that you were guilty, then you're going to be, you're going to be put down. That's the, that's the nature of it. And it says in verse 13, you shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. Innocent bloodshed that defiles a land has to be purged. Different applications there, okay? Over to chapter 21, verse 8 and verse 9. Again, there's a larger context here. Um, This is kind of like a what are those show? I don't watch evening crime dramas and whatever, but there's like CSI, different crime scene investigations and different um, shows that they spotlight, uh, you know, forensic science for law enforcement investigations. And my parents like that kind of stuff. Um, and that's kind of what's going on here. Okay, we've got, uh, we've got a dead body that's been found. All right person or persons unknown, right? They didn't have fingerprints back then, but <laughs> DNA testing or all this other stuff. But all they know is there's a dead body, and, um, and that's a problem, okay? Not only in terms of a whodunit, uh, if, if you can find the, the perpetrator and whatnot, but the fact of the, the innocent blood itself, because the territory is defiled, and which civil government is being held accountable, because you see, it's kind of in between. Well, which city is the closest city? And so um, if you find a slain person lying in the open country in the land and uh, the Lord your God gives you to possess it, it's not known who has struck him, your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. And say, all right, well, you're six miles from Austin, but you're only two miles from Pflugerville, so boom, there you are. All right, the closest city now is where the, the jurisdiction is. And those elders have to deal with it. So the city that's nearest to the slain man. That is, the elders of that city shall take a heifer of the herd which has not been worked, which has not pulled a yoke. Okay, And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to the valley with running water which has not been plowed or sown, shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Well, man, what did that heifer ever do? (laughs) Okay? In any event. But the point is, is the land has been defiled, and so a sacrifice must be made. This blood must be expiated. And uh, different principles that are there. Um, You'll note, then the elders have to come out and they wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken. And you know, it's kind of symbolic when you wash your hands of something. You say, I'm innocent of this. I have nothing to do with this. I don't know anything about it. I'm washing my hands. 
Okay? In this case, they're washing the hands over the neck of the, the broken neck of the, of the, the heifer. Our, our hands do not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. And they're asking for forgiveness. Forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Now, it's not their fault. Why do they got to be forgiven? Well, even if it's not their fault, it's their responsibility. They are the elders of this village, of this town, of this territory. They uh, are responsible before the Lord to maintain the values of, of human life, to maintain the, the glory of Yahweh. So it's not their fault, but it is their responsibility, and they are asking for forgiveness. Um, do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel. In other words, remedying the stain upon the territory of this blood. The blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood <coughs> from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. <coughs> now it's interesting, we have to ask ourselves, we're not a theocracy, we don't have a Levitical code, we don't have a valid um, Levitical priesthood anyway that can break a heifer's neck and try to cleanse a land, as if that would work anyway. But what do we have? What do we have as church-age believer priests, as salt and light in our community? (coughs) Do we ever consider the role that we have as intercessors for our community in confessing our community's sins, in cleansing our community's defilements? All right, something to ponder. Psalm 106. (coughs) Psalm 106. Well, you weren't kidding. I guess this is the earliest cedar's gotten started. That's that's horrendous. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna live in denial and pretend it's not happening. I I just choose not to participate this year in uh, allergy seasons. All right, Psalm 106. Maybe we just got to get Dan ordained and then I'll take a three-month sabbatical. We can just <laughs> disappear during, the, uh, during cedar season. All right, Psalm 106. You realize what we have here is a walk through the Bible. It's a fun chapter. It's, uh, it's kind of a review of Israel's history, and most of it's pretty sad, uh, as it kind of recounts rebellion after rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. And uh, a few victories here and there. My hero Phineas shows up in verse 30 when he takes hold of a spear and takes care of business there. And then there's a Meribah in verse 32. And uh, aspects there. We're learning about Meribah now on Sunday nights. Glenn Carney has been teaching Meribah to Hebrews chapter 3 in a great class. Um, but you'll note, uh, it says in verse 33, they, they were rebellious against his spirit. He spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and they learned their practices. If you're going to disobey the command to come out from among them and be separate, and we have the same command Israel had, because ours comes in the New Testament, Second Corinthians, where we're told what harmony is there with Christ and Belial. Okay? You say, yeah, but. No, there's no yeah, buts. We have no fellowship, no harmony, no concord, nothing in common. All right. 
So they mingled with the nations, they learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. You know, you'd be surprised the compromises you start making. And it seems like little things to start with, and then they grow, and then they grow, and then they grow, and before you know it, here you are. You're a partaker in this stuff. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. Why? Well, because there's six things the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. No wonder the anger of the Lord was kindled against the hands that shed innocent blood is on the list. And here they are. And he abhorred his inheritance. Remember what abhorred is about? That's the language of abomination. That's where you, you, you're pushing it far from you. You want nothing to do with it. You don't want to hear it, see it, look at it, smell it. You want nothing near uh, the, uh, the abomination. It's something that you abhor there in verse 40. Okay? Finally then, Isaiah 59, 7. See, we did 51 last Sunday. We got 52 coming up next Sunday. We should be in Isaiah either 59 or 60 by the end of this year. So we're getting close. In fact, we get this one twice. Because this one applies to hands, and then we're going to see it again in point five uh, with feet. All right, start at the beginning. Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. (laughs) So there's pity party excuse number one. Get rid of it. Okay, pity party excuse number one is the, the, the grumpy believer in his pathetic prayer life that says, well, God just can't do anything with my problem. Okay. Do you really think his hand is that short? Are you limiting his omnipotence? What he can reach, what he can handle, what he can deal with? No. Your problems are not a deficiency on the part of God's hand. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Likewise, God is not hard of hearing. Okay? Your prayers aren't going anywhere, not because God cannot hear you. It's because God is choosing not to listen to you. And he's choosing not to listen to you because he's already told you what he wants to hear. What he wants to hear is your confession. It says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that, notice, it doesn't say he cannot hear. It says he does not hear. God in his holiness and in his sovereignty says, I'm not listening to a thing you have to say. So long as you continue in your state of carnality. Okay? You're out of the the bottom circle as we draw the top circle, bottom circle all those years ago. So your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Okay, this is what we call carnality. You're out of fellowship. You're walking in darkness. Now you don't lose salvation, of course, but you have lost your fellowship. You've broken your fellowship and there's that separation. What's another word for separation? Death. Thank you. Death is a separation. And so this isn't, you know, the spiritual death of the unbeliever, but it is the operational death of the carnal believer. You're operationally dead. You're walking in darkness. So, he says, your hands are defiled with blood. 
Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. In fact, you read through the, the indictment here and they've, uh, I think they've violated all six or seven out of, out of Proverbs chapter 6, right? They're, they're kind of running down the checklist and hitting all of them. From their eyes to their mouth to their tongue to their hands to their feet. We get to their feet in verse 7. All right. No one sues righteously. No one pleads honestly. The perversion of the judicial system. So we get into in the in the uh, false witnesses under point six. It's more than just personal lies. It's it's actually the manipulation of the judiciary for your own gain. Uh, they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing. Uh, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are the works of iniquity and, in, uh, and an act of violence is in their hands. Oh, the imagery on this is, is amazing. Their feet run to evil. Okay, that's what we're going to see. The rapid running in uh, Proverbs 6. Feet that run rapidly to evil. This is what they're doing. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. That's all they're thinking about. They don't have a non-iniquity thought. Remember the description we had before Noah's flood? It said every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only on evil continually. Here's where they are. Devastation and destruction are in their highway. They do not know the way of peace. In fact, it's been so long since they were walking in the light, they can't even remember what it was like. Okay? Is there a place that, man, you haven't been to in ages and you probably couldn't find it again if you tried? Okay? I'm sure. We all have stuff like that. A place you haven't been to for so long, you think, oh yeah, where was that place? How do I find that place? Wait a minute. That's, don't be like that with being in fellowship. Okay, if, if you haven't been in fellowship so long, you can't remember how to get there. That's a problem. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. So the hands that shed innocent blood. Which brings us now to the fourth item, the heart. The heart, Choresh Machaboth Aven. The heart. Let me get back to Proverbs 6. The fourth thing that Yahweh hates the heart that devises wicked plans. The heart that devises wicked plans. So, Choresh is our verb, is our participle there for. Uh, devising, inventing, creatively uh, making something up. Uh, then machshavoth, uh, that's a mouthful. Machshavoth. Machshavoth's a great thing. We should love plans. God says, I have plans for you. Plans not for your calamity, but for your blessing, that you may have a future, that you may have a hope. God is a God of plans. He's a planner. But if you're making plans of evil, look out. Okay? There's so much in this that is a perversion of God. Even our inventiveness, even our creativity is a gift from the Lord. But when we use creativity for wicked purposes, look out. So a heart that uh, devises wicked plans. Understand, stumbling into wickedness is bad enough. A stumble, a trip, okay? That's bad enough. Say, well, I didn't see. 
you know, I, said, I didn't see something. Well, okay. You should have seen it. So it's still will be unto you because you should have seen it, but you didn't see it, so you stumbled. But stumbling is, is that's bad enough. What's worse than that? It's not a stumble when you're deliberately doing it. When it's not a stumble when you're plotting it, you're planning it, you're creatively inventing new ways to do it. That's not a stumble. That's not an accident. You're actually taking your God-given blessings of humanity in His image. In other words, your creativity and your inventiveness, your imagination. And you're turning what He's blessed you with into a cursing by utilizing it to craft these plans. And even if you never get to follow through on your plan, even if you never get to achieve your, your, your nefarious dreams, you've still created a plan. And you've brought a plan into existence. You have materialized or you have actualized a potentiality, at least in your own mind, at least in your soul. And whether your body is able to go through with it or not, in your soul you have constructed evil. So stumbling into wickedness is bad enough. James 1, 14 and 15. James 3, 2. But it is an even more serious offense when man creatively and inventively, these are the issues here involved. When you're talking about the participle of choresh and you're talking about the, the meaning of, of choresh. To devise something. It is an even more serious offense when man creatively and inventively devises wicked plans. So we got some, some principles. There's a lot here. We've got to unfold this, I think, in, in stages. Let's start with the book of James. That's easy enough to find and hopefully well known to us. We all stumble in many ways. You know. A moment of weakness, a... a, a a momentary lapse of judgment, that's a stumble. James 1, 14 and 15. Of course, the temptation process precedes this. Um, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. All right, so this is a process. There's steps that take you there. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And notice, the sin hasn't even been done yet. Because when sin is accomplished, that's when it's finally done, overtly, physically, it then brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, and it goes on. So we understand there's a process. We understand that there is temptation. It exists. We're fallen creatures in a fallen world. Every single one of us has a sin nature within us. That's, that's just the nature of the Adamic race in, in this fallen world. We get that. Uh, James 3 in verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Okay, Lots of different ways you can sin. You can sin with the tongue. You can sin with the mind. You can sin with uh, overt sin. You can sin by sins of omission. There's lots of ways that we can stumble. Obviously, the one that he's going to highlight here in this chapter is the sins of the tongue. 
So that's bad enough. Stumbling and awakening is bad enough. And we're not saying that those are less than other kinds of sins. You're still out of fellowship. You've still got to confess them. You've still got to return to the light. But it's easier to recover from a stumble. It's easier to recover from a stumble because you have not done the damage that you've done in plotting it, planning it, inventing it, wanting to do it, trying to do it, preparing to do it. A lot harder to recover from that. Because the true repentance and the true confession from that is a a tougher chore. It is an even more serious offense when man creatively and inventively devises wicked plans. Now, for some help with this participle, uh, I'm going to take us to Exodus 35. And this has nothing to do with sin. This has nothing to do with uh, the, the point at hand in, in Proverbs 6 has nothing to do with evil at all. But it's an illustration of the creativity and the inventiveness that is brought to bear. Okay, So in Exodus 35, verse 32, verse 33, verse 35, we have an illustration here of what this creativity is about. And I'm going to take us through, I'm going to explain it, um, but... Really, I am, I am um, the worst person in Austin Bible Church to, uh, to teach this because I am the least creative human being you've ever met in your life. Okay, and Forget within Austin Bible Church, I'm talking the entire planet. Um, there, I, there is nobody less creative or inventive than me. All right. If you if you ask me to craft a garment or construct uh, something, uh, you're, you're you know, just hold your breath, okay? Because it's not going to happen anytime soon. Now here is Exodus 35. Moses said to the sons of Israel, "See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, not Bob, Bezalel." the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Now here's a guy being given a spiritual gift in the Old Testament, interestingly enough, okay? Not the gift of pastor, teacher, or any church-age spiritual gift, but it is a spiritual gift. It is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it is a divine enablement and an empowerment. He has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in craftsmanship in order to make designs, and here's our choresh, to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze. How do you fashion these things? How do you shape them? How do you, how do you make them look like anything recognizable? <laughs> how do you, how do you uh, overlay them to where they properly um, overlay? Uh, if, if you have wood that's overlaid with gold, or how do you plate something? I don't know, but Bezalel did, okay? Uh, to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood so as to perform in every inventive work. This is what just boggles my mind because I've got no capacity to any of this, you know, but you know the tabernacle was glorious. You know Solomon's temple was glorious. The very similar spirit was provided for the, the builders in Solomon's temple as well in the, the, uh, the, the unparalleled craftsmanship of everything 
from the robes to the walls to the veil to the furnishings to everything there was that was so inventively. I like the term inventive. So as to perform in every inventive work. Okay? I think musicians are inventive. Just musically so. Because you have to just... You have to think in terms of lyrics and music and meter and tempo and rhythm and, and just all kinds of things that have to come together. Otherwise, it's just it's just a, it's just a crummy song. Okay, if uh, if it's not done well, if it's not inventive, it takes a creativity, and this is the nature of it because we are in the image of God. He is the Creator, so it's natural that you would uh, assume that uh, the bulk of humanity, you know except for your pastor, will be creative in some capacity, will be inventive in some way. And uh, that's the indication there in verse 33. And so not only is it uh, this guy, Bezalel, but Bezalel gets uh, a partner. He's also put in the heart to teach both he and Aholiab, the son of, ah- of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. So both of these guys now. The main guy is Bezalel, but then his, uh, his uh, sidekick here is Aholiab. He has filled them with skill. In, some, in, in fact, chachma, the wisdom or skill, to perform every work of an engraver, of a designer, of, of an embroiderer, in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and in fine linen, and of a weaver, as performers of every work, and makers of designs. Makers of designs. You know, and this was something that, um, you know, my, my mother would sew dresses and things, and she would get a pattern from the fabric store, and, and then, uh, you know, she would follow the pattern. And then, and then sometimes, and this was years and years ago, I mean, she would do dresses for the girls and shirts for Matthew and I and just different things. And we'd be in matching outfits for church and stuff like that. But sometimes, though, there was something in the pattern that she didn't like. And so guess what happens then? Well, you just make your own pattern. You just creatively and inventively, and uh, you can become a maker of design. Somebody had to make that pattern. <laughs> there was a creative person that made that pattern. Or, you know, you're, you decide to go off recipe if you're cooking something, right? And you just, see, I, I, don't, I don't relate to that. If I, any, I'm going to follow a recipe because that's what it says to do. And, and, and to vary something or to change a, a, a proportion on, on if I'm going to add extra salt, well, that's ridiculous. It says right there, that's the amount to put in. Or to substitute for something different. Well, it doesn't say to substitute. It says that's what you put in there. So I'm, 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 I'm not a good cook, uh, even with recipes. But to have the inventiveness, to have the, the creativity to design something, to make something, to, to, because you realize before it ever is actualized in the universe, it's in your mind. Before you ever lay the dish on the table and feed your family with it, it's been in your mind. You have creatively visualized it, and then you made it happen. See, this, by the way, I think is the is, is some of the biggest um, skill sets and, and things necessary to, to teach Sunday school. 
<laughs> you don't need a gift of teacher. You just got to have some creativity to hold the kids' interest, to get them some projects, to get them, get them busy doing something. And in the process, you're teaching them some Bible verses and some other things. But the creativity and flexibility to work with these little, uh, you know, ragamuffins, um, it's, it's, uh, it's just stunning to me. And so we move on from chapter 35, and here's what happens, you know. Chapter 36, and boy, he just turned them loose. And Bezalel and Aholiab, man, they, they were able to teach others. Every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding. So there it is. All right. Now, that has nothing at all to do with what God hates, except it illustrates the inventiveness of these that are devising wicked plans. They are devising wicked plans. It shows you their creativity, their inventiveness, their imagination. You know, we learned this in the jail. We learned, we, we get these inmates, these, uh, you know, drop high school dropouts, these thugs and whatever, and they couldn't pass a high school chemistry class. They certainly weren't, uh, you know, AP chemists going to uh, University of Texas and some kind of a chemical engineering program. But they uh, they learned how to do homebrew LSD in the in the uh, uh, jailhouse kitchen. All right, they, uh, they they're very inventive <laughs> in sin, in uh, in different things. They can cook up uh, you know, they can run a meth lab. How is it? See, there it is again. There's human creativity twisted by the sin nature, manipulated by the the fallen angels and the demons. And that's what we're illustrating here in Proverbs 6. The heart that devises, the term devises there, inventively creates, creatively and inventively devising plans of wickedness. All right? Machshavoth, those are the plans, oven of wickedness. Plans of wickedness. And uh, goodness, when you talk about hostility to God, God himself is the planner. God himself has plans. Let's look at Proverbs 3.29. All of these are in Proverbs. Proverbs 3.29. We talk about planning. Uh, we already covered this in chapter 3. Do not devise, here's our uh, scheming, uh, harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. In fact, the plan itself has put you in carnality. Whether you can bring it to reality or not, you've devised it. You've created this plan. You've invented it. And uh, just the, the act of inventing it itself, whether you can achieve it or not, the, the, the mental exercise he went through to invent it, to devise it, is, is uh, something that God hates. Proverbs 6, verse 14 and verse 18. Here's where we are today in Proverbs 6. But we, we saw it earlier, prior to verse 18, because remember it was in verse 14, who with, uh, remember this Belial, this wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth, he winks with his eyes, because he's, he's working this scheme, he's working this plan. He's saying something, but then he gives the wink, and so you know that he's a liar. You know that he doesn't mean it. He's got something else that's going on. 
And the wink is designed to get you roped into it. Who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, whatever it is, he's tipping you off to his plan, to his deceit, and he wants you to go along with it. Who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. And so this devising of evil that leads to the strife spreaders, it's the same progression that we have, Doug, it's the same progression that we have in uh, 16 through 19. The heart that continually devises evil. That's just one step short of the strife spreader. Uh, Back to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12. And verse 20. Proverbs 12, 20. So many of these are kind of standalone Proverbs from verse to verse, but there's a lot of uh, back and forth here. Truthful lips in verse 19 will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. So, you know, which heart do you want to have? What are you involved with? Are you involved with plotting evil? Or are you involved in, uh, are you a counselor of peace? Do you have joy? One has joy and the other is uh, not in a good place. Proverbs 14, 22. Proverbs 14, 22. Again, a lot of these verses are standalone verses, not entirely connected with the ones before or after. We've got a lot of back and forth, a lot of contrasts in these uh, dice stitches. So verse 22 says, Will they not go astray who devise evil? Of course. But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. Ah, same verb. It's the same verb for creative inventiveness. Okay? For creatively and inventively devising something. Why don't we spend our waking hours creatively and inventively devising uh, good, good things, benefits, creatively and inventively devising things. Another advantage the inmate has is you know, over uh, the officers that work there, okay? Because the officer that works there uh, does his uh, shift and then goes home. And uh, hopefully when he goes home, he stops thinking about those inmates, okay? It's terrible when you take your work home with you. But he goes home and he's no longer thinking about all the schemes and all the manipulations and all the other things, but the inmates that are living there, that's where they are. Around the clock, 24-7, it never stops. They're always thinking about, how do I do this? 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 In any event, uh, the, the creative inventiveness. We ought to be, and I like this because it's the same verb in both halves of the verse, devising. Will, uh, will they not go astray who devise evil, but kindness and truth, chesed and ameth, uh, kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. Devisers of good. So I start to think, well, what, what good have I done today? Who have I encouraged? Who have I evangelized? Who have I blessed? Who have I, what, uh, what, what service may I be to Jesus Christ today? And, and get inventive with it. Just think about it. And then uh, maybe you can come alongside somebody that's not so inventive and give him some help. <laughs> All right. So here's the heart that devises. From the heart we go to the feet. Feet. 
that run rapidly to evil. Feet that run rapidly to evil. Nothing wrong with feet, but where are the feet taking you? Okay? Are you running to the good or are you running to the evil? The uh, rapid running here reflects a readiness. Rapid running reflects readiness. In other words, you're not twisting anybody's arm to take part in this evil. Your, your feet are very rapid to, to get there. Okay? Somebody says, hey, how about pluckers? I'm there. Okay? Doesn't take long. Doesn't take long. Just boom. Okay? Run rapidly. Uh, it's not as if... And why? Because you've been there before. And you like it. And you're going to be there again. Because you like it. And so... Uh, we have the expression here as well. Rapid running reflects the readiness. And we, we studied this. Remember the, the readiness, eagerness study we did in 2 Corinthians? Our eagerness ought to be oriented towards the will of God. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10, 11, and 12. We're supposed to have an eagerness for the will of God, an eagerness for good, an eagerness for, for truth, an eagerness for serving Him. We should not have a readiness or an eagerness that is oriented towards sin and evil. I don't know if you recall this or not. We did an entire doctrinal study on this, on the readiness and the eagerness. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10, 11, and 12. And this particular facet of readiness, though, is is the attitudinal readiness, right? It's not the preparatory readiness. It's not the equipping readiness. When we talk about readiness, there's the attitude of readiness, and then there's the, the preparations, the, the, the equipping for the readiness, okay? And they don't always match. Sometimes we're, we're equipped to do something, and we're just not sure attitudinally we're ready for it. <laughs> I have all the training, I have all the equipping, I have all the background, I'm ready. You know, I've every, there's all the, the, the things are taken care of. I'm just not attitudinally ready. Then there's other people. They've got the attitude of readiness. They're just not prepared yet. <laughs> okay? And you commend them for their zeal. You're really happy that, man, they're, they're, they're zealous, they're go-getters. And yeah, they're ready to, they're ready to go be missionaries in, in Timbuktu. Um, but they don't have a passport yet. They haven't gotten any shots. They don't really have any theological training. And, and so you understand the difference between an eagerness readiness and a preparation readiness? What we're looking at today is entirely the, the eagerness, the attitudinal readiness. And so in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's talking about the, uh, the service that's happening here and the the, uh, the ministry that the Macedonian churches are involved in. They're putting the funds together for famine relief uh, for the saints in, uh, in Judea. And uh, he admonishes them about this. He says um, in verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, through, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago. Man, they, they had this idea before the Macedonian churches ever had this idea. But they didn't follow through with it. More than a year ago. Not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. And it's the desire 
that precedes the idea, that precedes the, the action, the doing. Okay? And so this is the, the attitude of readiness that precedes the thought process of, of making that decision. It carries it that third step back, in other words. I think we're, we're very great on the action step and the decision step, right? The action step is when you do something, like teach a Proverbs class. The, the, the decision step is when you make the mental choice to do something. When you say, when you make the choice, I'm going I'm to teach a Proverbs class this morning. But there's a third step, even behind the thinking. Even before you decide to do something or think about doing something is the attitude of eagerness, is the attitudinal step that lies behind the thinking step, and the attitudinal step to want to teach a Proverbs class, okay? And if you want to teach a Proverbs class, then it's a whole lot easier to think about and decide to teach a Proverbs class, and of course it's a whole lot easier to actually teach a Proverbs class. So the attitude. And that's where they fell short, because the Corinthian believers had the desire, but they never got past the thinking about it, because they lost their desire, they lost their eagerness. The Macedonian churches had the eagerness, they had the desire, they thought about it, they started doing it. And now here's a year later, the Corinthians haven't, uh, haven't got off the, uh, the stick. Verse 11, now finish doing it also. And that's the final step. You can get started on something but not carry it through to the completion. Now finish doing it also so that just as there was the readiness to desire it. And that's why it's attitudinal behind the thinking. There's a readiness to desire it. So there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And that's where... Um, you can bear fruit for Jesus Christ and your resources are not an issue because the readiness is what's rewardable. The attitude is what's rewardable. And he'll give the supply when necessary. He'll give the supply. He will reward the attitude. All right, so there it is. Verse 10, 11, and 12. If you want more on that, you can get it off the website. Um, or get a Second Corinthians notebook and read the uh, the doctrine of uh, readiness or eagerness. We should not, though, have an eagerness that's oriented towards evil. That's what this feet that run rapidly to evil is all about. You are just on the edge of your feet, wondering, man, when's the next time I can do this? You've been planning it all along. Your heart's been planning it. And so the moment the door opens, just a little bit, ooh, you're there. You're there. You're the first one there. You're first in line because your feet are ready. Proverbs 1.16. Even before you get to 6.18, we have it in Proverbs 1.16. Warning his son to stay away from these people. Don't have these kind of friends. If sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, don't go there. They got all these things. They say in verse 14, throw your lot in with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. You know, you know don't hang with that crowd because you know what they're going to do every chance they get. 
Psalm, uh, there's Proverbs 116. Uh, this morning course, we have Proverbs 618. Along with this, we already saw a few minutes ago, we saw Isaiah 59, verse 7 and 8. Remember, we were just there. We were dealing with that and with the heart verse. The heart verse mentioned, uh, that one at the heart verse? Okay, that mentioned Isaiah 59. No, it was the hands, the hands verse. In any event, James 1, 14 and 15. We're carried away and enticed by our own lust. Do we have an eagerness? Do we let ourselves get carried away? Why do we let ourselves get carried away? Why is it that we are carried away and enticed by our own lust? When lust says, hey, let's do this, don't get carried away by it. It's a passive, passive activity. Being carried away, if you let yourself be carried away, if you let yourself be enticed, all right, then lust has conceived. Lust has conceived. All right, next week we'll come back. We'll deal with these false witnesses because it's different from the liar. It's different from the lying tongue. Uh, we do repeat the Shekhar vocabulary, at least when it comes to a witness, but the uttering of lies, the breathing of lies, the snorting of lies, or however you want to handle that verb, the breathing of lies of the false witnesses. And the, uh, the context for this in the uh, perversion of justice, what, we, what we'll be looking at, and then the pinnacle, of course, is the strife spreaders. And you have a complete societal breakdown at that point. So two more things, and then we uh, wrap up this portion with verses 20 through 35. And uh, yeah, 20 through 35 is the next, no, through 35, through 35, down through the end of the chapter. Um, Back to the adulteress again and more of the sex stuff and, and that, 20 through 35. All right, almost there. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Uh, continue to open our eyes and things. Now we've studied it. Now we need to live it, Father. We need to spotlight aspects in our heart, in our eyes, in our feet, in our hands. Anything that, uh, Father, that, uh, that needs to be dealt with, you've exposed it now academically. I ask that you would expose it uh, experientially. Make it real. Humble us to live what we've learned. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.